Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, invites us to turn in the book of Acts to chapter 24. Paul's Jewish opponents wanted to kill him, and his Roman rulers were too chicken to admit his innocence and let him go. But God works in the midst of all of it to enable his apostle to boldly explain who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Why don't people believe in Jesus? Why don't people believe in Jesus? After all, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. That was a long time ago. None of you have ever met him personally. From a secular standpoint, he's a shadowy figure that lived back there a long time ago. And people will say, you know, we have some of the most brilliant minds in Germany, in England, in Holland, in the United States, all over the world in the universities of the land, we have brilliant scholars that are studying the life of Christ. And if you know anything about their studies, there's all kinds of disagreements on who Jesus is. Who is Jesus Christ? And so the agnostic, the cynic, the secular person can say, how am I supposed to know who Jesus is? I mean, after all, there's all different kinds of Jesuses. How do I know whether to worship a Baptist Jesus or a Methodist Jesus or a Roman Catholic Jesus or a Mormon Jesus? How do I know that even this Jesus person is the one that I need to believe in? And so we can sit here and say, you know, it's really very much of an academic question and I really think I need to be agnostic about it. Now, as we sit here this morning, most of you aren't talking like that, but this week you will meet people that are honestly wrestling, supposedly, with questions like that. Now, there's something that I want you to really recognize from God's Word. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not believing in Jesus, and the people that you meet that are not believing in Jesus this week, we have all kinds of intellectual reasons why we don't believe in Jesus. But I want to tell you the biblical reason, the real reason why we don't believe in Jesus. And that's because we're immoral. Because we're sinners. We need to get beyond the preachiness. I was confronted again by being exposed to a spiritual service about how, how used we are. You know, I don't get to listen very much to religious talk. You know, usually I'm the one that's giving it. And so it's very seldom that I have a chance to sit down and listen to somebody else and, and interact where you sit. And the thing that just scared me as I sat with a group of people listening to very important spiritual truth is that we were so used to hearing it and it fell into a form, it fell into a way of talking that we're all used to. It's called the preacher's form. And some of us have been trained from, where time, from the time we're very small that when a preacher shifts into that form, you sit there looking really attentive, but I mean, you disappear. Even at a funeral, people disappear. I can't believe it. You know, here's someone dead in front of them. They've got to think about eternity, and yet I found myself even wandering away, you know, to never, never land. And that concerns me. And I'm concerned for myself as a pastor. We really need to shake it up. I mean, if we're so used to the form that we hear all the words, but it goes in one ear and out the other, we're going to really miss it. Because the reality this morning is that the truths from God's holy word are exactly that. They're truth. 
You know, one day, in fact, some of us could face Christ this week. And the reason why we don't believe in Him is not because of intellectual arguments fundamentally. It's because of our sin. We don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to respond to the truth. Even if the truth reaches us, we can get terrified about it, but maybe not do anything. Because some of us would say, well, Dave, I'll tell you what. I would really believe what you all teach. I really believe in the Bible. If I could see an eyewitness, if I could sit down and talk with someone that actually saw Jesus Christ alive, if I could sit down and be eyeball to eyeball with a man who could say, listen, I didn't just read about this in a book. I actually saw Jesus Christ talking to me and I looked him right in the eyes. If I could meet someone like that, I would believe. Well, this morning I want you to open your Bibles to Acts 24 because we're going to talk to somebody. We are going to be exposed to somebody who actually had that experience. He had the opportunity of going one-on-one with a man who actually saw Jesus Christ alive, and yet he did not believe. Why not? And the why not, the answer to that question will explain why some of us won't believe. Why maybe you haven't believed. Or why the people at work that you're trying to reach, well, they won't believe. Why some family won't believe. The story begins here in verses 1 through 9 of Acts chapter 24. And what we're going to look at is the question, why doesn't a person believe? And we're going to raise the issue, is it ever convenient? Is it ever convenient to believe? And if it isn't convenient, why not? Well, we begin with the flatterer's lies. And I hope one thing that I'm getting across to you from the book of Acts is that the Bible is not some pious book that's out there and never, never lands somewhere, that doesn't know what your bosses are like, that doesn't know when your boss gets involved with his secretary or lies about a contract, you know, that you say, well, man, that really catches the Bible by surprise. It doesn't. Not one single bit. The Bible knows all about your work, all about your neighborhood, all about me, all about you. If you really want to enter into truth, the Bible's a place to find it. Contrary to what a lot of people think, the Bible's not a very pious book. It talks about going to the bathroom, talks about getting sick. Very realistic. In fact, the translators usually change those sections. So it'll be a little bit easier for us pious folk to take. The real Bible's a book that's very earthy, enters right into business life, right into family life, and understands it. And we're confronted with that kind of a passage today because a lot of you would say, you know, the courts that we have these days, man, the courts in Waxahachie, man, they're so unjust. There's conniving going on, and there's manipulation and lying. It's like that in Dallas. You can get so cynical. You say, man, if only we could go back to the good old days when the courts were really good. There weren't any good old days. Judges have always been open to manipulation. Not all judges. And maybe our church family. I'd love to see our church family raise up some godly, born-again, truthful judges and lawyers. If we could only get rid of the lawyers, what a millennium it would be. You often hear that, don't you? Boy, these lawyers, all they're after is my money. They're a bunch of charlatans. All they're concerned about is word manipulation. We really need some godly, born-again, effective, skillful lawyers. Not shoddy lawyers that say, oh, I'm a Christian, I can't help but be lousy. We need some young people to really commit themselves to stand for truth. But unless you get cynical, 
as we begin this passage in verses 1 through 9, we have one of the most lying, one of the most smooth-tongued, one of the biggest flatterers you could ever meet. And he's going to tell a whopper all in the name of truth. Let's look at it, verses 1 through 9. Five days later, the high priest Ananias, he was the highest religious authority in Israel at the time, but he was a thief, he was a robber, he wore beautiful religious clothes, but he was immoral. That's the man Ananias. He went down to Caesarea, 70 miles from Jerusalem down to Caesarea with some of the elders, a few of the elders, some of the religious representatives of the Sanhedrin, and here's the fellow. They took a lawyer with them named Tertullus. What a name for a lawyer. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, so the courtroom is set, Felix calls Paul in, the, the prisoner, and Tertullus presents his case before Felix. Now listen to this. Marvelous words. You want to picture Tertullus, this marvelous orator, I mean, a beautiful voice, tremendous command of Greek or Latin or whatever. We don't know for sure exactly what the immediate language was that was used. Probably Greek. And Turtleus begins like this. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight, it has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of this Nazarene sect, and he even tried to desecrate the temple, so we had to seize him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. Now, have you ever listened to political campaigns? How many of you have ever chuckled over the campaign promises? You know, the leader of a politician's campaign gets up, this man's going to give total, I mean, he'll take away all your debts. He'll give all of you $1,000 apiece. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, you know, all the things. And during a campaign, what do a lot of us say about it? I know it's a bunch of baloney. It's an amazing thing what Turtle has promised you. Let me tell you the truth. What kind of a person would you think Felix was based upon this speech by the lawyer? You think of a reformer, great moral giant, man that really stood for justice. You know what Felix was really like? First of all, he started his life out as a slave, and he got to know the emperor, Claudius, very, very well. And so he was set free by the emperor's mother, Antonio. He rose up through their ranks because he was a playmate of the emperor. And when they got older, his brother, Paulus, was able to get him this rulership over there in Palestine and in Syria. In actuality, he was very cruel. He even caused some of the bandits in Israel to give him a cut. He took a cut of the banditry throughout the land of Palestine. We're going to find out that he's married to a beautiful girl named Drusilla. Now, Drusilla was a beautiful teenager. I mean, if she was here today, everyone would notice her. She was a beautiful, beautiful young woman in her late teens. Drusilla was married to a king named Assis of Amisa, which is a small kingdom in what's today modern Syria. 
And Drusilla wasn't happy with her husband. She didn't like being married to her husband. In fact, her husband was so devoted to her, he even got circumcised to become Jewish in order to marry this Jewish girl named Drusilla. So they were married. She met Felix. Felix was this dashing Roman who was governor of all the land of Palestine. Well, Drusilla wanted to marry Felix, and Felix wanted to marry Drusilla, and so Felix sent a magician, an occult specialist, a religionist on the wrong side to Drusilla. And the religionist told Drusilla, there's nothing wrong with divorce. There's something terribly wrong with the Jewish laws of devotion to your husband. You ought to just go and live with Felix. Marry him. Divorce, cease, and marry Felix. So she did. So this is the girl he's married to. He ended up having three wives, by the way, which is exactly what will happen today. If you ever think you can leave one husband and marry somebody else, and you're going to move from unfaithfulness to faithfulness, which is what all of us want. I've never met a person yet that said, what I really want out of life is to marry about 20 people. I just really, just really enjoy going from one marriage ceremony to the next. What I'm really looking for in life is just a whole lot of marriage partners. Now, I have met, if I'm honest, I've met some people that are like that, but not too many. Most people are telling me, this is the time. This is the one. I know it's wrong, and I know it's unfaithful, and I know it's untrue, but this is the one. I'm going to really be happy with this one. Now, for the life of me, I've still yet to figure out how you can ever move to a devoted, dependable, lifelong commitment when you're never willing to admit untruth, falsehood, unfaithfulness in a relationship. You just can't move from unfaithfulness to faithfulness unless you have some truth, some confession of sin, some acknowledgement that there's evil in our life and only Christ can forgive us. That's very important. Drusilla, and I, I just want to re- help cause you to realize, this governor that Paul is standing before was a real, immoral, violent, cruel man. But according to Turtleus, he looks like the greatest reformer that ever lived. Why does Turtleus talk to him like that? Why didn't Turtleus get up there and say, you know, Felix, you're a real scoundrel, but you're in the position of authority, so here's the case. Us Jews really hate your guts because you've murdered and butchered a bunch of our people. But here it goes anyway. Now, I'm not saying he should have talked like that, but why didn't he talk like that? Because flattery is the way you influence somebody. I want all of you to listen for a minute. Watch out for the smooth tongue. Some of you sit there and say, well, man, I'm not susceptible to that at all. You say, man, I never listen to that kind of garbage. Just wait and see. It's unbelievable. Somebody says, you know, boy, you know, you are really effective in that area of your work. You know, I've never met someone with with some of the insights that you have, they are really marvelous insights. And what starts to happen inside of you? Man, I find I'm like a sitting duck. Man, the next thing is, say, wouldn't you like to buy $10,000 worth of my insurance? And I go, oh, yeah, that would be great. And then about a, now, a day later, I go, oh, no, what did I do now? Flattery is very powerful. It's what an immoral person uses to seduce somebody into that immorality. I've come to meet you in Proverbs 7. I've been longing to see you. You're the one that my heart is reaching out for. And, and the naive fool sits there going, blah, 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 blah. wow, you mean me? 
Yeah, you. And we move from this low self-image to this flatterer. And they can be lying right through their teeth. If you have some friends that say, you know, you really have some bad moral warts in your life. Thank God for those friends. How many of you have some straightforward people that you know they love you, but their tongue sometimes really bothers you because they tell you the truth? Anybody have some friends like that? Thank God for friends like that. Now, we need to learn to speak the truth in love. But it's a whole lot better to speak the truth even if you don't have love. Now, you should learn by the Spirit's power to speak the truth in love. It's a lot better to speak the truth and not be a flatterer. Because Turtleus is all over the world. Turtleus was lying to Felix. Felix knew he was lying, but he was still open to that flattery, open to that pride-appealing kind of language. And then he lied and accused Paul of three things. Number one, he said that Paul was inciting to riot. Now, there was a little bit of truth like that. The most powerful lies have a tiny bit of truth in them. Because if you were to analyze Paul's missionary journeys, what has happened in a lot of the cities where we visited with Paul? A lot of cities have ended up in what? Riots. But was Paul inciting the riot? Was Paul like an agitator that went into a city and did everything he could to produce a riot? Was he like a communist that goes into a country like Nicaragua and tried to stir up the countryside? No. Riots happened. But they didn't happen because Paul was inciting them, but there was a little bit of truth in that. By the way, did Paul incite the riot in Jerusalem when he was arrested? No. But Tertullus says this man is an inciter to riot. Second of all, he said that Paul was the leader of an illegal sect. Notice he calls the worship of Christ the sect of the Nazarene. And there's a lot of sneer in that, a lot of negative cut in that. He says he's a ringleader of this illegal religion. Thirdly, he desecrated the temple. The Asian Jews said that he had brought a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile, unclean into the court of the Jews. He had desecrated the temple. And then Tertullus has the audacity of saying, if you cross-examine him, if you just ask anybody, they'll verify the charges. That was totally untrue. What we have in this accusation against Paul is just rank, unadulterated lies. We can hear a lie so much that we begin to think, well, they must really be very nice people. And we're very nice people. When the reality of the matter is, nobody's really a nice person until the Prince of Peace comes into our life. Nobody's really good. Nobody really is free from falsehood. And one of the things that I want us all to realize in this room is there's a tremendous need for us to face how cunning and deceptive and prideful our hearts are. That's why Paul made a difference in his society. Paul wasn't a very good speaker. Paul didn't look very good. He'd really never make it in the modern American church. He'd look terrible in a three-piece suit. He just didn't know how to make old ladies feel very good and nice especially those that had a lot of money to give. Paul just didn't have those gifts. In fact, he was really kind of abrasive. It took, a, it took a while for people, I think, to really fall in love with him. But you know what Paul was? He was a man of incredible sincerity and truthfulness. He told it the way it was. He told it skillfully. He wasn't obnoxious, as we'll see in just a minute. 
But he was a man that when he stood in the midst of this court of lies, with this tyrant as the judge, with these religious leaders trying to just lie, like, lie through their teeth about him, how does Paul respond? The way we need to learn to respond. The testimony of the defense. Look how Paul responded in verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Now, Paul did the cultural thing, the polite thing. He did say something nice about the governor. In fact, he said the only thing nice you could say about Felix that was true. And that was he had ruled for a long time. In fact, he'd been in the Holy Land for about a decade, about 10 years, and that was a long time. So I want you to see Paul did say something nice. He did the cultural thing. A speech was supposed to start out like this, but he's absolutely truthful. Felix had ruled for a long time. And Paul doesn't say that he's glad to make his defense before Felix, like he will with Agrippa, but he says, I'm glad that I can defend myself. And that was all true. So he starts out like that. Then he makes his defense. It says, I know you can, verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. First of all, the charge that I inflamed all of Jerusalem to riot will just not hold up. How could you incite a whole city when you were only there for a few days? He wasn't even there in the city for a week. If you count the time he was in Jerusalem plus the travel to Caesarea, there's a little bit of conflict over the chronology. The most he could have been there was less than two weeks. He says, Felix, be honest. I couldn't have done all this stuff. I couldn't have done all these things. These men are accusing me. There's just not even enough time. So he starts out like that. My accusers did not find me, verse 12, arguing with anybody at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. Believers, we need to carefully look at this. There's something really exciting about stirring up debate and conflict and arguing. The reason I know there's something really exciting about that is I love that. There's a part of me that likes nothing better than a really good, fight with words. I mean, it's more fun than playing football. I'd love to be an editorialist that could do that kind of a thing just for a living, but it's not good. And you'll never come to the truth that way. You'll never, never come to the truth by the heat and the argument of debate, because in the heat and the argument of debate, the issue is not even whether or not it's true or not. And every one of us are so biased. I just want to illustrate how you'll never, never come to truth in the heat of debate. I watched three hours of my boys playing soccer. That was fun. But at one of the games, Jonathan played one hour, and I was on the right side of the field, but Joel played immediately after that, so I was on the wrong side of the field during Joel's game. In other words, I was with parents that were from the other team. I mean, the referee was blind. He was cross-eyed. He made every call wrong. How could he be such, a, such an idiot? How could he have ever missed that? I mean, he's totally against it. Now, how many of you would go to the stake for the truthfulness of all those claims? Now, a good friend of mine was there, and he called out. Has he called any calls for us? 
Has he made any calls that went our way? Will anybody answer that? Well, nobody on this side answered it. Now, that sounds like an airtight case. I mean, we've really got truth here. Well, I, like an idiot, I almost got clobbered for it. No, not really. But I said, ask the other side. <laughs> and see what made it so much fun is I was on the other side because Joel was playing with the other team. And maybe it was a little bit biased on our side. But there were some calls, you know, that went their way. And it was Jonathan when we left says, man, Dad, I can't believe the anger. I mean, these parents, I mean, the kids, you know, the kids are out there playing, knocking heads, they're over, they shake hands, drink a Coke. The parents are, man, get that coach. Why we ought to get him? <laughs> that tells us something very powerful about ourselves. And when I say that, I really include myself in that, because if you ever see me on an athletic field, you'll know what you need to pray for me about. Because I am very competitive. And it's amazing how it colors how you look at reality. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to realize is, in the heat of debate, in the heat of agitation, you'll never come to the truth. We desperately need men and women like Paul today that will tell the truth without any incitement to riot, without any of the pull of pride that they want to have the power. You see, when those things begin to enter into your heart, even if you are right, you'll end up being wrong. There's very few of us that understand how powerful and how deceitful and how cunning the desire for influence, the desire for prestige, the desire for power is. And Paul, by the power of the Spirit of God, was able for a lifetime after he came to know Christ to remain a simple man, not a foolish man, but a sincere man, a truthful man. If you say the life of Paul, and he's been one of my favorite Bible characters for years, I've spent hours with Paul, and one of the dominant characteristics of this man is this beautiful, quiet, but very strong sincerity. And so he says, I didn't incite to riot. I wasn't debating in the temple of Jerusalem. He said, I was just there to worship. Verse 13, they can't prove the charges they are now making against me. Now, that's to answer this charge of an, of an incitement to riot. Now he deals with a second charge, which was leadership of, of an illegal sect. And here he says this, however, I will admit that I worship, this is verse, thir, uh, verse 14, I do worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Notice that Paul will not accept the designation that Christianity is an illegal sect. He says, oh, my enemies call it a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before man. This is a very important answer to the charge of the leadership of an illegal sect. He said, yes, I am a leader. And it was true. Paul says, I am a leader of the believers. I am a follower of this man called Jesus. Is it an illegal religion? Is it a religion which was outlawed by the Roman Empire? Paul says, no. 
Now, this is something that's very important for us in the modern world. And it's a big dividing line. It's a way I can tell beyond a shadow of a doubt whether somebody's truly a biblicist or whether they're just a nice Jesus person that doesn't really believe in the real Jesus of the Bible. You say, how do you determine that? Do you believe that Jesus is for Jews? Do you believe that Jesus is a Messiah that Jewish people need to believe in in order to have eternal life? You can find out just like that whether someone really understands the Bible. Now, I want to make something absolutely clear. I think Christianity as a culture, as a religion, stinks. I want nothing to do with it. It's murdered Jews. It's butchered them. The Jewish people as a culture have every right to hate the Christian culture. It's been manipulated. It's moved masses to butcher them. And I want to dissociate myself from that. I hate Christianity as a religion, as a nice, comfortable philosophy of life, as much as any Jew. I hate it because it's a lie. It tells you we're just a culture. We're just a nice art form. We're a nice religious philosophy. That's not at all what Jesus is. You know what Paul was saying? Paul was saying from Genesis to Malachi, they promised a Savior. From Genesis to Malachi, a Messiah was promised that he would come from God. Moses predicted it in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Isaiah the prophet predicted it in Isaiah 53. And Paul says, I am standing before a Roman court as a Jew. In the previous hearing in Jerusalem, he says, I am a Pharisee. But he went on to say, I am the true Pharisee. I'm the one that genuinely believes Genesis through Malachi. And Jesus is the one that brings all of it to fulfillment. Paul is making an incredible, incredible claim. And it will never be popular in the modern world, but it's the truth. One day, every Jew and every Gentile and you and I will stand before Jesus. And not one of you can get away from it. And what Paul said, what I believe, is I believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of a true Judaism. If you are genuinely Jewish, if you are genuinely one who believes in the law and the prophets, if you are like Nicodemus, a scholar who really wants to know the truth, then you will come to Jesus by night, in the daytime, anytime. You'll come because you want to know the truth. And anybody in this room that misses Jesus, you'll miss Jesus for one reason. You really don't want to know the truth. That's a strong statement, but it's true. There's going to be nobody in hell that loves truth. And to me, that's a great comfort that God is just, that God is true, and that there will be nobody in hell that really wanted to come to the truth. The Corneliuses of this world that are sincere, that want to know the truth, will come to the truth. The Nicodemuses of this world that are honestly studying, that are honestly seeking to learn, that really want to know the truth of life, they'll end up with Jesus. Because he's the author of the truth. If you don't come to Jesus, it's because you don't want to know the truth. You might play all kinds of games. You might have all kinds of degrees behind your name. You might be able to talk a beautiful line, but you're just like Turtleus. You're a flatterer. And you're not opening your heart to the truth. And Paul said, I am a leader of the Christian faith. 
but it's the fulfillment of Judaism. It's what brings the Old Testament to completion. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor, to present offerings, and I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts. He's saying, I did not desecrate the temple. I was ceremonially clean. He had followed all the cultural norms of Judaism. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it is this one thing, I shouted as I stood in, the presence, in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. What Paul does is focus the real issue, which is the real issue in all of his trials. He is condemned by the Jews because he believes in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, I want you to stay with me. That was the real issue in all of these trials. From a Roman legal standpoint, that was no charge. It would never stand up in a Roman court that a Jew should be tried for his belief in the resurrection. If he wanted to believe that Joe Blow rose again from the dead, that was not an issue for a Roman court. The Jews could argue that. They could debate it. It was a religious question from a point of Roman law. But it was nothing that should cause a man to be in jail. And that's what we're going to flow with with the book of Acts. Because that's the real issue, the conflict over the resurrection of the dead. And I want to tell you something. Every one of us in this room one day are going to face Jesus as a judge. Whether or not we believe in the resurrection was not something that should hold us in a Roman jail in the first century. But I'm just going to lay the truth before you very clearly. It will be enough if you reject Paul's belief in the resurrection. If you turn away, if you don't really build your life on the resurrection of Jesus, it will be enough to put you in custody in hell forever and ever and ever. Now, I would never, never tell you that if God's Word hadn't taught it. It goes against my own human thinking. But it's exactly what the Word of God says. I want every one of you to think. One day, you will stand before Jesus. One day, every one of you in this room are going to stand before Jesus. And whether or not you genuinely believe and have committed yourself to the new life that he can give because he rose again from the dead. Not just a nice Easter story. Not on the level of Santa Claus. Not on the level of Bugs Bunny. But you have committed your life to the truth. Christ is alive today. Whether or not you've committed yourself to that conviction will make all the difference in the world. All it will make a difference. And that's the issue. It was not a Roman charge that should keep Paul in jail. But I think Dr. Luke would be confronting us and saying it is a charge that will decide your eternal destiny if you do not believe in that resurrection. If you have not committed your life to that, if it's not the faith of your life, it will be a sufficient charge for the eternal judge, not a Felix, not a hypocrite, not a charlatan, but the true God who knows all truth. It will be a charge that will cause us to go to hell. Now, what are the kind of people that will not believe in the resurrection? We close this morning with the delaying judge. Felix heard the case. 
What do you think about the legal case? There's no eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses have taken off. The reason the Asian Jews took off is because if you were an accuser and in a Roman court of law it was proved that your whole story was a hoax, then your head would roll. So the Asian Jews nicely went bye-bye. There's no way this charge can hold up. So what is Felix going to do? Well, he's an honorable judge. He will say, Jews, I'm very sorry to the Jewish hierarchy, but you have absolutely no cause to keep this man in jail. There are no charges against him because based upon my authority as a Roman governor, Paul, you can walk out of here a free man. Isn't that the way it's going to work? Isn't that the way human justice works? Isn't that the way courts work? How many think that? Let's vote on that. How many think Paul should go free? How many of you think that Paul is absolutely innocent? There's no grounded charges against him. He ought to go free. The right thing for him to do would be to go free. How many of you think he's going to go free? You bunch of cynics. You're so cynical. Oh, you've already read the story. Let's look at it here. Then Felix, verse 22, who was well acquainted with the way. Notice, Felix had been in the Holy Land for 10 years. He was well acquainted with the claims of Christ. He adjourned the proceedings. He said, when Lysias, the commander, comes, I will decide your case. Lysias had already sent a formal letter saying that Paul was innocent. So he doesn't have to wait for Lysias to come by, but he's stalling. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. That was very sweet and nice. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. Remember the girl I told you about, the teenage girl? He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, that is conformity to the standards of God, Paul talked to, to Felix about righteousness. We need to talk to unbelievers about righteousness. We talk to unbelievers about this good buddy Jesus. He's the greatest psychiatrist you could ever meet. He'll make you feel so happy and so bubbly and so marvelous. I mean, you'll just float into eternity. Man, Jesus, he's much better than even the Dallas Cowboys. Come to Jesus. Baloney. There's no Jesus like that that's real. Brothers and sisters, I want you to listen as we close this service because there's a tremendous burden that our evangelical Christianity is not feeling at all. It's a burden called sin. Do you realize this morning and do I realize that the God of the universe is a righteous, holy judge that says thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not a justment problem. Your middle life crisis will not stand up at the judgment seat. Listen to me. When you stand before the God of the universe, don't give him the baloney. I went through a crisis in high school. If you get in bed with a woman that doesn't belong to you, it will not stand up. God will say, I don't care. You made the wrong choice. You're responsible for it. You sinned. And it's condemning. We have a nice, comfortable Christianity that's sickening. I'm going to be very strong with you. Paul talked to this man who was a tyrant. He murdered people. So do we. He committed immorality with women, one after another. He took a young teenage girl and married her. And I can cover it all up and say he had an adjustment problem. He was raised wrong in Rome. 
Paul didn't say that. He said, Felix, the God of the universe is righteous. There are ten commandments. You can't break them with immunity. He talked to Paul about self-control. Felix was talked to about self-control. In every one of our lives, in my life and yours, there are uncontrollable passions. Why we go and sin is an irrational, stupid, foolish act, but we do. Every one of us in this room do it. We have areas where you put us into an area of temptation and we can act like the devil. And Paul talked to Felix about those passions, that need for self-control. And then he talked to Paul about this, judgment. And I want all of you to listen to me. You know what I notice in our, in our church family? When you all sin, and you start sinning badly, you're not here anymore. And if I call you on the phone, you don't want to talk to me. And I want to share with you, that's probably the greatest hurt that I have in the ministry. Because I don't want to talk to you to condemn you. It's like being a doctor when you found out that somebody has cancer that's going to eat their guts out. And yet they're totally unaware of it, and you want to just get in touch with them to help them to conquer that cancer, to be used by the Holy Spirit to help them conquer that cancer. But they don't want to have anything to do with you. In our society, you can go away to another church. You can just totally blot me out of your life. I promise you, you can go to a hundred churches that you'll never hear what you're hearing this morning. Never. You'll never have a person just lay it out the way they really believe the Scripture saying it. You can go to a place that if you're homosexual, they'll tell you that's a nice little way to live. It's a third alternative lifestyle. If you want to leave your wife, you can go anywhere you want to. There's millions of places that'll tell you, oh, that's just great. Man, we just love that kind of a thing. You can go to a lot of places like that. But I want to say something with you. Listen, don't ever be afraid of me at all. For one thing, I'm weak anyway. I have no bite, really. I can't do anything in your life. If you don't want to live your life the way I want you to, don't. That's not the issue at all. I am not the issue. No pastor is. But from the bottom of my heart, I want teenager, child, mom and dad, I want every one of you to listen. Because it's one of the most powerful realities of my life, and it needs to be one of the powerful realities of your life. One day, you will stand before Jesus, and there will be no place to go, no place at all. That's what Paul was talking to Felix about. He was saying, Felix, there's a judgment. And one day, Felix, you will stand before Jesus Christ and you will give an account. And brothers and sisters, it's going to be absolutely fair. There will be degrees of punishment in hell. It will be absolutely fair. God will evaluate the way you've lived. God will know exactly what your family background was. He'll know exactly what every issue is. It will be absolutely fair and just. You won't even have to spill your guts to him because he will know it intuitively. He will be able to look into my very soul and into your very soul. We will be absolutely naked before him. No games to play. No excuses. No alternatives. It'll be total truth. And all of us are going to face that. You know, when Felix heard that, it terrified him. I mean, it just scared him to death. But you know what? He never believed, as far as I know, because it wasn't convenient. It says that for two years they kept Paul in jail because he thought Paul would give him a bribe. It was never convenient for Felix to say, I'm someone that covets. I really love money. Even if I have to steal and break Roman law to get it, 
It was never convenient for Felix to go to Paul and say, Paul, I'm a coveter. The only reason I've kept you in jail is that I want you to give me money, and I need forgiveness, Paul. I can't conquer my covetousness. I cannot overcome my sticky fingers. Felix, it was never convenient for him to say that. It was never convenient for him to go to Paul and say, Paul, I love beautiful women even if they don't belong to me. Paul, I lusted after Drusilla, this beautiful knockout 18-year-old, and I seduced her away from her husband, and I just, I broke God's law, and I'm sorry, but I can't get out of it myself. It never was convenient for Felix to say that. It was never convenient for Felix to say, Paul, there's a violent streak in me. There's an anger inside of me that I will murder people. In 59 AD, about a year after this time, Felix sent Roman legionaries into the city of Caesarea and butchered hundreds of Jewish people over a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was so bad that Nero himself, who was no Sunday school teacher, it was so bad that Nero had to recall Felix. It was never convenient for Felix to say, Hey, Paul, there are powerful lusts within me that are just tearing my guts out, and I could murder, and I could steal, and I could be immoral. But it was never convenient for Felix to be truthful. How about you? Is it convenient for you to say, God, I'm going to have to stand before your son, and there will be no place to hide there will be no other church I can go to. There will be no other business, no other city I can move to. We're going to have to stand before God. We're going to have to stand before Jesus Christ. And whether or not you've been truthful is going to be very important. And I want to close with this. You know, none of you need to be afraid of that day. You don't have to be terrified like Felix. You really don't. When I stand before Jesus Christ, I'm not going to be terrified. You know why? Because there was a time in my life where I went to the real Jesus and I said, Jesus, this is what I am. I am a sinner. Dave Wurtzen is immoral. He's angry. He's violent. He is a sinner. But Jesus, the one who is my judge, said, David, I know. And that's why I died. That's why I hung on the cross. That's why there was a bloody, violent, cruel, vindictive death. And on that cross of Calvary, I totally took your place because you are a sinner. You are condemned. You are worthy of eternal judgment. But I took it all. And there was a time in my life where I said, Jesus, I know it and I believe it. And then Jesus went on and he said, David, the third day I rose again from the dead. And David, I'm not asking you to overturn a new leaf. I'm not asking you to reform yourself. I'm not asking you to get rid of the Drusillas and all this in your own strength. I'm not asking you to do any of that reform in your own strength. But I'm going to change you. In other words, if you'll let me come into your life, if you'll trust in me, if you'll depend upon me, I will resurrect a new life inside of you. The resurrected Jesus will come and live within. And when I do, there will be a change. When I come to live inside of your body, there's going to be a new David. And slowly but surely, by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit of God, the old David will be crucified. And as we move to eternity, there will be a new David that one day will have every right to stand in the presence of a righteous, holy God 
And that holy God will say, my child, my son. Brothers and sisters, have you had that happen to you? Have you ever come to Jesus like that? If you have, you need to rejoice with every ounce of strength. You need to recommit yourself to that. Because the real Jesus is a Jesus that wants to deal with the Felix of this world. The real Jesus is not a nice, comfortable God. He's not a nice anesthetic. He is a challenge. But if you come to him, he'll generate righteousness in your life. He'll generate self-control in your life. There will be no condemnation to those that are in Christ. You won't have to be afraid of the judgment. Brothers and sisters, only you know, only you know whether or not you've had that time of truth with Jesus.